This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. They're some of our favorites. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. Up next, a listener's story from Joy Neal Kidney, and she listens on WHO in Des Moines, a great heritage signal. Joy is the keeper of her family's stories, and today she shares one with us. Take it away, Joy. An Iowa waitress became an officer's wife in Texas. It was the only formal gown my mother ever owned. She bought it for the opening of the officer's club at the Marfa Army Air Base in Texas. Doris had just become an officer's wife by marrying Warren Neal, an Iowa farmer who'd earned his pilot's wings. Doris Wilson had been a waitress in Perry, Iowa, at the McDonald Drugstore, which had a soda fountain and a restaurant area. In fact, she was serving Sunday dinner there when the announcement of the attack on Pearl Harbor interrupted the background music playing on WHO radio. She remembered thinking that all of her brothers were liable to be drafted. One by one, the five Wilson brothers left home to serve. Doris's brother, Dale Wilson, and Warren Neal were both Iowa farmers, enlisted as air cadets in 1942. They were awarded their silver wings and became officers on the same day a year later. Dale at Roswell, New Mexico, Warren at Marfa, Texas. A few months later, Doris was working at Bishop's Cafeteria in downtown Des Moines. Her brother Dale stopped by in his uniform to see her there while home on furlough. He was sent to North Carolina next for B-25 combat training. Warren was retained at Marfa as an instructor for advanced cadets. He and Doris had dated off and on since high school and were writing to each other during the war. Doris even wore pilot's wings on her coat. With four brothers already in the service, and calls for women to enlist to help with the cause, Doris collected recommendations from teachers and had begun the process to apply for the WAVES, the World War II women's branch of the Naval Reserve. Warren was afraid they would get separated forever, so he asked her to get married instead. Doris, wearing an aqua suit, and Warren in uniform, were married in May 1943 in Dexter, Iowa. Warren didn't know the car yet, so the newlyweds caught a ride to Texas with another couple. Their first home was the Cruise Hotel in Marfa, since everything else was full. Day after day, while Warren was instructing at the airbase, Doris hunted for a cheaper place to live, but so did everyone else. Billy Cruz, the hotel owner, said he didn't know what people did after he had to turn them away. Even the cots in the hotel halls were all occupied, and people even lived in areas of the hospital during those war years. Imagine an army moving in on Adel, the county seat of Dallas County, Iowa. Then you have an idea what Marfa is like. Doris asked her mother to send hangers and other things they couldn't buy, like sewing needles. Right away, she was invited to a tea for officers' wives then a luncheon. This Iowa waitress had all of a sudden become an officer's wife. The luncheon was quite a handy affair, she wrote home, but not as bad as she'd feared. 
A few weeks later, Warren and Doris found a home. For the next year and a half, they lived in the First Christian Church. They rented a small room in the front of the Adobe Church, $13 per month for the room, water, lights, a bed, and two chairs. The bath was unhandy since it was at the opposite end of the church, but they were so thankful to find someone moving out so they'd have a cheaper place to live. They'd just gotten settled when they were to attend the formal opening of the new officers' club. Another pilot's wife invited Doris along to shop for gowns for the dance. Doris's was nearly the color of the suit she'd been married in a few months earlier, aqua, short-sleeved, accented with lots of small ruffles. She wrote home that she had fun at the dance and felt like Cinderella. With the war ramping up in Europe and in the Pacific, the Air Corps tried to graduate pilots as quickly as they could. Warren worked long hours, especially when they had night flying and cross-country trips. By then, all five brothers were in the service, so Doris was very busy writing letters. Early that December, she wrote to Dale, then in combat in New Guinea. She ended her V-mail letter, I'm gonna let you in on a secret. We haven't told anyone yet, but we're gonna have a boy, we hope, next May. She signed it, good luck and love, Doris. Dale never got her message. The small letter was returned, still sealed, marked missing in action. Decades later, I, the boy she'd hoped for, was the first person to open the little V letter and read it. Doris lost all three younger brothers during the war. There's no photo of her wearing the aqua gown. I remember seeing it as a child only a couple of times, among her keepsakes in the storeroom of her old farmhouse. But now it's been passed on to Doris's firstborn, who eventually became the keeper of poignant family stories and letters and terrible telegrams. Treasures like the aqua gown to wonder about. Did she ever get to wear it again? To feel like Cinderella once more? And a special thanks to Joy Neal Kidney. She lost all three younger brothers in the war. It's unimaginable, that kind of loss. And she became the keeper of the treasures, the terrible telegrams, and everything else. And there's someone like that in every family. That, by the way, is me and mine. A special thanks to the folks at WHO Radio in Iowa for putting us on their terrific station. It was one of the great honors of our of our show to be put on WHO. And a special thanks again to Joy Neal Kidney and to Monty Montgomery for putting the story together. And we're looking for your stories, too, like this, from listeners all across the country. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. Joy Neal Kidney's story, and my goodness, what a family story here on Our American Stories.
it's milk, it's bread, it's the stuff on your list, it's the strange little snacks you end up buying instead. This is Lee Habib, and we continue Our American Stories. And there's a reason why Trader Joe's has become one of America's favorite grocery stores. The store draws hordes of shoppers on the strength of its affordable store brand offerings, which rotate often and include everything from coffee and booze to healthy meals, unexpected snacks, incredible cheese, and internationally focused entrees that have helped evolve the American palate. It has legions of devoted fans, and even haters can't help but find something to love within its aisles. Here's Greg Hengler, a real lover, with a story of Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's, the surfy, laid-back grocery store chain with a cult-like following, known for its cheap prices and floral print-clad staff, has been a household name for years. When you break it down to square footage, Trader Joe's is actually selling more than double its competitors like grocery store chain Whole Foods. And when it comes to the traditional we-have-everything-and-more mega grocery store chains, the small Trader Joe's locations do more than simply offer competition. They outwork and outsell these Goliaths of grocery. The question is, how? After all, Trader Joe's focuses on a unique selection of products under their private label rather than a large amount of them. They don't sell the same old things we normally see. No Lay's, no Heinz, no General Mills, etc. And whereas a traditional grocery store stocks upwards of 40,000 units, Trader Joe's runs around a mere 4,000. In order to make this clear, I went to my local Kroger and did some aisle counting and compared it with Trader Joe's scaled-down approach to shopping. Kroger stocks 285 varieties of cookies, Trader Joe's 154, Kroger 144 pasta sauces, TJ's 14, Kroger 75 iced teas, TJ's 9, Kroger stocks 275 cereals, TJ's 39, Kroger 44 olive oils, TJ's 14, and Kroger stocks 40 toothpastes, TJ's just 4. So back to the question, how does the little guy Trader Joe's compete at such a high level? Psychologist and Trader Joe's enthusiast Barry Schwartz coined the term the paradox of choice and quite literally wrote the book on it, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. Here he is to explain what he means. All of this choice has two effects, two negative effects on people. One effect, paradoxically, is that it produces paralysis rather than liberation. With so many options to choose from, people find it very difficult to choose at all. So that's one effect. The second effect is that even if we manage to overcome the paralysis and make a choice, we end up less satisfied with the result of the choice than we would be if we had fewer options to choose from. And there are several reasons for this. One of them is that with a lot of different salad dressings to choose from, if you buy one and it's not perfect, and you know what salad dressing is, it's easy to imagine that you could have made a different choice that would have been better. And what happens is this imagined alternative 
induces you to regret the decision you made, and this regret subtracts from the satisfaction you get out of the decision you made, even if it was a good decision. I had no particular expectations when they only came in one flavor. When they came in a hundred flavors, one of them should have been perfect. And what I got was good, but it wasn't perfect. Finally, one consequence of buying a bad-fitting pair of jeans when there is only one kind to buy is that when you are dissatisfied and you ask why, who's responsible? The answer is clear. The world is responsible. What could you do? When there are hundreds of different styles of jeans available and you buy one that is disappointing, and you ask, why, who's responsible? It is equally clear that the answer to the question is you. You could have done better. With a hundred different kinds of genes on display, there is no excuse for failure. And so when people make decisions, and even though the results of the decisions are good, they feel disappointed about them, they blame themselves. Clinical depression has exploded in the industrial world in the last generation. I believe a significant, not the only, but a significant contributor to this explosion of depression and also suicide is that people have experiences that are disappointing because their standards are so high, and then when they have to explain these experiences to themselves, they think they're at fault. And so the net result is that we do better at, in general, objectively, and we feel worse. There's no question that some choice is better than none, but it doesn't follow from that that more choice is better than some choice. There's some magical amount. I don't know what it is. I'm pretty confident that we have long since passed the point where options improve our welfare. Trader Joe's understands what Barry is saying. And as Barry has said himself regarding that magical number, I think Trader Joe's is the best example of how the world should be constructed. The man responsible for all of this is the original Joe, the guy behind the beloved grocery store chain who founded the company emphasizing quality over quantity. And that quality starts with the more than 41,000 employees known as crew members. After all, the core of any business is customer service, which Trader Joe's more than excels at. Data science professionals have ranked Trader Joe's number one in customer preference for two years running, with Costco coming in at number two and Amazon in third. The brand remains simple, with no online store, no loyalty programs, no special card to swipe, and no sales. Here's Trader Joe's Vice President of Marketing Product, Matt Salone, Marketing Director, Tara Miller, and Joe himself, discussing the company's origins on the newly launched Trader Joe's podcast. So it's 1958, and Joe Colomb, Joe, he takes over a small chain of convenience stores around the L.A. area. These, these are called pronto markets. The whole idea is fast. It's pronto. It's quick, right? And they're convenience stores before we really even know what convenience stores are. This is before 7-Eleven becomes the thing that it is. These are little tiny corner markets. The kind of place where you could get anything from, say, a pack of gum to some pantyhose to a box of ammunition. I spent 10 years running pronto markets. Towards the end of that, I really did not like convenience store formula. Joe is the classic entrepreneur. 
Joe's really good at looking for, finding, and developing opportunities. The demographics were changing in the United States because of the GI Bill of Rights, which was the largest experiment in mass higher education in the history of the human race. And I thought that these people would want something different. The GI Bill of Rights passed in 1944 provided benefits such as grants for school tuition, job training, and hiring privileges for World War II vets. So after realizing that competition from a burgeoning chain called 7-Eleven would likely drive it into the ground, Joe decided to introduce a new concept. The tiki trend was in full swing. So in 1967, Joe opened the first Trader Joe's in Pasadena, California, a play on the name of popular tiki restaurant chain Trader Vic's. That first store is still there in the same spot, but the chain now has over 487 locations nationwide. By 1972, Joe knew that the average American was traveling more and developing tastes for foods that were impossible to find at the average supermarket. So, along with the store's cedar-planked walls and Hawaiian shirt-wearing crew members, he rolled out a new product. Here again is Tara and Joe. The 1972 breakthrough. Not to be confused with the 1972 break-in. That was Washington, this was Los Angeles. Different story. Granola. Not just any granola, though. This was the first private-label Trader Joe's product. And after granola, Joe never looked back. You don't have to worry about all of the soft drink salesmen coming in and the bread salesmen coming in and the potato chip people coming in. You're just focused. And that solves so many problems. (laughs) Joe is also a big fan of California wines. And the original Trader Joe's sold literally every California wine that was available, helping put California wines on the map. And what a story, the Trader Joe's story, the paradox of choice, and so much more. We'll learn how Trader Joe's becomes a force nationwide in retailing, and in loyalty, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's milk, it's bread, it's the stuff on your list. It's the strange little snacks you end up buying instead. It's booze, it's nuts, it's pills, it's peas, it's the peanut butter made of sunflower seeds. It's a ball of ice cream that's covered with flour. It's the shelves that are empty by the dinner hour. It's the beautiful moms in their yoga clothes. It's our favorite place, it's that store Trader Joe's. And we continue with the story of Trader Joe's here on Our American Stories. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the rest of the story. I think it's fair to say most companies go through CEOs like we might go through a pair of shoes. You know, it's like, oh, the earnings were down this quarter. We need to replace our leadership. The wind is blowing west. We need to change our leadership. Well, it's interesting to think about a business that is a little over 60 years, a little over 50 years as Trader Joe's, 
and having through that entire stretch of time three CEOs. Um, that's weird in the best possible way. And so Joe, the founder, is leading the company for the first 30 years, and he is central casting, dyed-in-the-wool, entrepreneurial spirit. It's the quality of the people which sets Trader Joe's apart. Forget the merchandise, forget all the other stuff. It's the quality of the people in the store. In 1973, a trip to Trader Joe's would have offered you many items that you won't find today, like pantyhose, which was sold until 1978. In 1977, they expanded their private label with fun names like Trader Mings, Trader Giados, and Pilgrim Joe, and introduced the first reusable canvas grocery bag. In 1979, Joe sold Trader Joe's to Theo Albrecht, Albrecht's company, Aldi Nord, still operates Trader Joe's in the U.S. By the late 1980s, the chain had expanded into Northern California. In 1993, the first Arizona location opened. In 1995, brought expansion into the Pacific Northwest. In 96, the first two East Coast locations opened outside Boston. Between 1990 and 2001, the number of store locations quintupled and revenue shot through the roof as they rolled out an average of 10 new items per week. During this time, they also introduced supermarket innovations like putting handles on paper bags. In 2002, they introduced one of their most notorious products, a $1.99 bottle of wine produced by a guy named Charles Shaw, a West Point graduate and it came to be known as Two Buck Chuck. Here's wine expert and wine creator, Charles Shaw himself, being given a blind taste test of Two Buck Chuck. So let's pour it out. So we got. So the first thing we're going to look for is aroma. The fine wine has actual qualities of the grape, and you can smell the fruitiness of the grape. And frankly, I can smell some fruit in this wine. This is amazing. I'm going to taste it. First thing I'm going to do is put it under my tongue. And I picked up some decent acidity. It's not bad. It's a little dry. It's got some tannin. And then I'm just going to put it in my mouth and see what I think. I think this is a very satisfying wine. Some consumers make the mistake of always equating quality with price. That was not the case at the 28th Annual International Eastern Wine Competition. With 2,300 wines in the competition, judges awarded a prestigious double gold medal to a $1.99 bottle of California wine, the 2002 Charles Shaw Shiraz. And it would happen again in 2005 at the Cal Expo competition and then go on to win other awards in Orange County. Trader Joe's has sold one billion bottles of Charles Shaw since 2002. Here's Chris Condit, the category manager for wine at Trader Joe's. I'm gonna give you the secret to Trader Joe's here. So far they've all tasted like Tang, but not the good version if there is one. One thing that we do that sets us apart is we have a tasting panel. There's a lot of wine out there. There really are hundreds of thousands of wines available in the market. 
we carry about 500 in our stores. So we're tasting every day, literally every day. The acid, I mean, it's got the color, the acid. It's a little more savory than It's pretty good, though. You're going to tell me. It's Russian River. So it'd be Trader Joe's 2016 Russian River Petit Syrah. Everybody had a chance to try it, think about it? Who'd like to see that come in? Excellent. And lastly, and most... The source of the wine for our various private label and control label programs might change over time, but the wines are always going to be great because we get to pick and choose. We don't have to carry every wine. We don't have to always repeat that exact same thing every year. If it's not good, we don't think it's great value, we don't love the wine, we don't buy it. Trader Joe's Frozen Isle is another innovative wonder of the grocery world compared to the Frozen Isle in traditional grocery stores, which is flailing with only 6% of total store sales. Here's Warren Thayer, who runs the trade magazine Frozen and Refrigerated Buyer, explaining the poor numbers in traditional grocery stores. 46% of shoppers on the typical trip when they spend over $100 don't even set foot in the frozen food department. According to Phil Lempert, a food industry analyst, he says this is due to the predictable packaging of the once-novelty frozen dinners introduced in the 50s and the frosty barrier of the frozen selection. The red lean cuisine, the green healthy choice. It's sort of like boring. That glass door, it really creates a fence. You don't see those glass doors at Trader Joe's, which has open freezers. The problem with opening that ice cold door at your traditional supermarket means you've already committed to purchasing something which doesn't lead to much product discovery. Compare that to Trader Joe's low level open freezers that brings shoppers physically closer to the products. This allows the freedom to check out new products with less effort, more leisurely, and without the blast of cold air and subsequent frosted glass door. It's fun to go through that case to see what you're gonna find. Piggybacking on what Lempert said before about the unattractive appeal from the predictable packaging of traditional brands, Trader Joe's, on the other hand, has its own private label. They buy straight from the supplier, which ultimately cuts cost and leads to cheaper products for the customer. The products themselves are colorful, quirky, and have a consistent branding. Here's brand building expert Denise Liang. Okay, so it's usually um, kind of hand drawn or it's not looking like it's, um, you know, computer generated, right? Um, they're usually caricatures and then there's some descriptive copy. And all of that, I think, helps the person, you know, the shopper kind of see how this product fits into their needs. There's an element of discovery, like finding something, finding a new product you didn't know existed. David Ziegler Vall, the former head of packaging design at Trader Joe's, said that the hand-drawn images on the products evokes elements of trust and a human touch. Also a sense of being locally produced, handcrafted, and small batch. Trader Joe's has cultivated a level of trust that is really hard to manufacture. Trader Joe's found success by anticipating the needs of its customers, in many cases, knowing what the customer would want even before they did, and selling it to them at a low price and in a fun atmosphere. Joe, while still alive, is no longer involved with the company, but his legacy 
is set in stone. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler, and I think he's hoping he'll get some free passes at Trader Joe's for this, and who knows? You never know. Um, But my goodness, one billion bottles of two-buck chuck. And by the way, what they've done and how they've mastered the supply chain, the branding, the artwork, it's just a miracle. And it's Trader Joe's near where my sister and my dad live with my sister's husband. And I wander in there always shaking my head that I won't buy anything. And in the end, I always do. Trader Joe's story, unique retailing story in this country here on Our American Story. our American stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show as you know and history stories are our favorite and it's not always like history history military history it's cultural history and sports is a fundamental part of America's cultural history which brings us to George Will the renowned political columnist whose very best writing is about baseball George has brought us the stories of Yogi Berra and Kurt Flood And now brings us the story of another American legend. Here's George. I was born in May 1941 in the nick of time. I had 11 days to get my bearings before it began. The streak. It was the greatest event of a baseball season that flared dazzlingly on the eve of darkness. There were just 16 teams in 10 cities, and St. Louis was baseball's westernmost outpost. But the future... California, was present in San Francisco's Joe DiMaggio and San Diego's Ted Williams. Williams was so volatile as a cult and as one-dimensional as a surgeon. DiMaggio's cool elegance concealed a passion to excel at every aspect of the game. Williams used a postal scale in the clubhouse to make sure humidity had not increased the weight of his bats. The officials of the Louisville Slugger Company once challenged Williams to pick the one bat among six that weighed half an ounce more than the other five. He did. He once sent back to the factory a shipment of bats because he sensed that the handles were too thick. They were, by five one-hundredths of an inch. In 1941, Williams was hitting 39955 going into the season-ending doubleheader in Philadelphia's Scheib Park. Daylight savings had ended the night before, so the autumn shadows that made hitting hard would be even worse. If Williams had not played, his average would have been rounded up to 400. Instead, he went six for eight, including a blazing double that broke a public address speaker. He finished at 406. Today, when a batter hits a sacrifice fly, he is not charged with an abat. In 1941, he was. Williams' manager, Joe Cronin, estimates Williams hit 14 of them. So under today's rules, his average would have been 419. Since then, the highest average has been George Brett's 390 in 1980. Williams' achievement is one of the greatest in baseball history, but not the greatest in 1941. Nothing in baseball quite matches DiMaggio's 
56-game hitting streak. The Yankees were on a tear, so at home they rarely batted in the bottom of the ninth. DiMaggio had to get his hits in eight innings. And in the 38th game of his streak, he was hitless entering the bottom of the eighth with the Yankees ahead 3-1. to one. He was scheduled to be the fourth batter. The first batter popped out, the second walked, and Tommy Henrik was up and worried. He was a power hitter who rarely bunted, but if he hit into a double play, the streak probably would end. He returned to the dugout and got manager Joe McCarthy's permission to bunt. Then DiMaggio hit a double. On July 8th in Detroit, the American League won the most exciting All-Star game when, with two out in the bottom of the ninth and the National League leading 5-4, Williams hit a three-run home run to Briggs Stadium's upper deck. When play resumed after the All-Star break with DiMaggio's streak at 48, he erupted for 17 hits and 31 at-bats. As the pressure intensified, DiMaggio's performance became greater. He had four hits in the 50th game, went four for eight in the doubleheader that ran the streak to 53, had two hits in the 55th game and three in the 56th. The streak ended in Cleveland when the Indians' third baseman, Ken Keltner, made two terrific stops of rocketed grounders. Both times, his momentum carried him into foul territory from which he threw DiMaggio out by a blink. In those 56 games, DiMaggio hit 408 with 91 hits, 35 for extra bases, including 15 home runs. He drove in 55 runs and scored 56. The next day, he began a 16-game hitting streak. When it ended, he had hit safely in 72 of 73 games, not counting his hit in the All-Star game. Most records are improved by small increments, not this one. The consecutive game hitting record for a Yankee had been 29. The modern Major League record had been George Sisler's 41. The all-time Major League record had been Willie Keeler's 44. DiMaggio fell short only of two other professional hitting streaks. 69 games by Joe Wilhoyt of Wichita of the Western League in 1919 and 61 in 1933 by an 18-year-old playing for the San Francisco Seals named Joe DiMaggio. During DiMaggio's streak, radio broadcasts had been interrupted to bring bulletins about his progress. But once radio interrupted baseball, on the night of May 27th when the Braves were playing the Giants in the Polo Grounds, both teams left the field for a while at 10.30, and the public address announcer said, Ladies and gentlemen, the, the President, President of the United States. Of the United States. About 17,000 fans listened to FDR's radio address describing the lowering clouds of danger. Michael Seidel, author of Streak, Joe DiMaggio in the Summer of 41, says DiMaggio was a lot like the taciturn, enduring characters then played in movies by Jimmy Stewart and Gary Cooper, who was soon to play Lou Gehrig. DiMaggio, number five, was the successor to Lou Gehrig, number four, who died on June 2nd, 1941, of the disease that now bears his name. Gehrig was 17 days shy of his 38th birthday. He died 16 years to the day after he became the Yankees' regular first baseman in game two of a streak of 
2,130 games consecutive played. DiMaggio's similar stance toward life, a steely will, understated style, relentless consistency, was mesmerizing to a nation that knew it would soon need what he epitomized, heroism for the long haul. However, the unrivaled elegance of his career is defined by two numbers even more impressive than his 56. They are eight and zero. Eight is the astonishingly small difference between his 13-year career totals for home runs, 361, and strikeouts, 369. In the 1986 and 1987 seasons, Jose Canseco hit 64 home runs and struck out 332 times. Zero is the number of times DiMaggio was thrown out in his entire career going from first to third base. On the field, the man made few mistakes. Off the field, he made a big one in his marriage to Marilyn Monroe. But even it enlarged his mythic status as when they were in Japan and she visited U.S. troops in Korea. Upon her return to Tokyo, she said to him ingenuously, you've never heard cheering like that. There must have been 50 or 60,000. He said dryly, oh, yes, I have. They had gone to Japan at the recommendation of a friend, Lefty O'Doul, manager of the San Francisco Seals, who said that in a foreign country they could wander around without drawing crowds. The friend did not know that Japan was then obsessed with things American, especially baseball stars and movie stars. When the most famous of each category landed, it took their car six hours to creep to their hotel through more than a million people. As a Californian, he represented baseball's future. He and San Diego's Ted Williams, a 21-year-old rookie in 1939 when DiMaggio was 24. DiMaggio, a son of San Francisco fishermen, was proud, reserved, and as private as possible for the bearer, the second generation of America's premium athletic tradition, the Yankee greatness established by Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. DiMaggio felt violated by the sight of Marilyn filming the famous scene in The Seven Years' Itch when a gust of wind from a Manhattan subway grate blows her skirt up over her waist. Pride, supposedly one of the seven deadly sins, is often a virtue and the source of others. DiMaggio was pride incarnate, and he and Hank Greenberg did much to stir ethnic pride among Italian Americans and Jews. When, as a player, DiMaggio had nothing left to prove, he was asked why he still played so hard every day. Because, he said, every day there is apt to be some child in the stands who has never before seen me play. An entire ethic, the code of craftsmanship, can be tickled from that admirable thought. Not that DiMaggio practiced the full range of his craft. When one of his managers was asked if DiMaggio could bunt, he said he did not know and I'll never find out either. DiMaggio, one of Jefferson's natural aristocrats, proved that a healthy democracy knows and honors nobility when it sees it. And you've been listening to George Will reading highlights from two of his columns, DiMaggio's Elegant Career 
and the season of 41 and the code of craftsmanship. My goodness, the son of a fisherman. Well, look what happens. And this is the meritocracy and the aristocracy and how it happens in America. Not by birth, but by talent. And it's earned. And it's earned by the people and to the people. And not anointed. It's a beautiful characteristic of this great country. The story of Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams. The story of class incarnate, too, folks. Just plain class. Here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and our favorite subject is music, and our second favorite is history, and this next, well, this next hour combines both with one of America's very best cultural writers and one of our best music writers. He's written a beautiful biography of Louis Armstrong called Pops, but today we're here to talk to Terry Teachout about the book Duke, The Life of Duke Ellington, who was born in Washington, D.C., in 1899. Terry, thanks for joining us. Talk about where Duke Ellington was born. And he was born, of course, in 1899 in Washington, D.C. Talk about the effect and the impact that location had on his life. Washington, D.C. in Ellington's childhood and youth was one of the most ruthlessly segregated cities in America. It was, you might say, the northern tip of the Deep South. But it had a large, healthy, prosperous black middle class, a black bourgeoisie at the same time. That is what defines the Washington of Ellington's youth and the neighborhood he grew up in, uh, U Street. It was a place where you lived, if you could afford to, and in the alley, if you couldn't afford to, where every kind of black person, well-to-do and poor, striving and desperate, they were all thrown together. It was tremendously vital. But it was, it was a society that in its own class divisions mirrored the class divisions of the white world. There was a racial caste system among blacks. Uh, it had to do with economics. It also had to do with skin color. And Duke Ellington came from light-skinned parents, parents who had white blood in them. Uh, his mother had a senator uh, in her heritage. And this put them several rungs up the ladder. So you had a society of strivers, but you also had a society of people who were very self-conscious about their place in class. It might have looked on from the outside. Ellington's father was considered uh, pretty far up on, on the ladder of success because he was the butler of a white doctor. And so he acquired class identity and a, and a patina of, of elegance uh, from this very affiliation. And it's something I think that Ellington himself may have had equivocal feelings about. On the one hand, he was himself very class conscious. Uh, and he was a person who was inclined for his black friends to be people with light skin and for his mistresses to be women with light skin. At the same time, though, 
he believed deeply in the self-improvement ethos. Uh, that is why he was determined to make something of himself, something important. His mother had told him right from the beginning of his life, you, you are gifted, you are special, you are going to do remarkable things, and Ellington never doubted her. Well, actually, she used the word Ellingtonian exceptionalism. <laughs> My goodness. She was dead serious about it. And uh, Freud said that, that a boy who has the absolute approval of his mother is destined for success. If that's true, uh, Duke Ellington had the pedigree going in. And good for him. Let's get now to Duke Ellington's musical journey. Tell us about that. Usually, you become interested in music because you hear it, and it's beautiful, and you, you become transported by it, and then you start to think, well, maybe I could do that, maybe I could make that. But with Ellington, it seems to have been the actual act of performance, of getting his hands on the keyboard and hearing the kind of music he wanted to play that excited him. He'd taken a few piano lessons as a child from a woman named, believe it or not, Clink Scales. Uh, it's a true story. We had to track that down in the census records, but it's absolutely true. But they didn't stick with him uh, because she wasn't teaching him what he wanted to hear. It was when he heard ragtime and a little bit later, early jazz, that he heard a kind of music that spoke to him. And he came back to the piano. He started playing with it, tinkering with it, realized that he could play it. And that was when it all began. And from what I understand, Terry, Ellington found some inspirations early on that greatly influenced him. Who was Harvey Brooks? Tell us a bit more about him. Harvey Brooks was, I, I believe, based in Philadelphia. He was a late ragtime, early stride pianist. He's not well remembered today because he didn't make very many recordings. But he did make piano rolls. Ellington heard one early on. Being from a, a family of the black bourgeoisie, Ellington was not the sort of person who was likely to grow up hearing ragtime or that kind of popular music that was going around at the time. When he heard Harvey Brooks, he was stunned by how exciting the music was and how personal, how individual it was, how a personality was projected through the playing. He was determined to learn how to make that kind of music. That was really what, what pushed the button uh, that made Ellington want to be a musician. He had originally intended to be an artist, uh, a, a commercial artist, and he had real talent in that in that area. But when he heard this kind of music and realized that you could go out on a bandstand, play music like that, people would hear it and know it was you, and uh, that women would flock around the bandstand because they found that very sexy. And of course, he discovered very quickly that it wasn't just a matter of his being interested, that he also had innate talent for it. And it was Harvey Brooks who, who started him down that line, so much so that Ellington actually sought him out a couple of years later. And Brooks showed him some of the tricks of the trade. And he makes his way up to New York. And this is a, as the budding of the great Harlem Renaissance is, well, it's, it's about to come. But how does he make his way to New York? And what role did the uh, 1919 race riots in Washington play in that, if any. The race riots of 1919 had an overwhelming effect on, on Washington, D.C. Uh, they were violent. They were shocking. They caused a lot of black people to realize just how fragile their lives were. And it, it seems impossible that they wouldn't have had that kind of effect on Ellington. He had already been hearing musicians from outside Washington. He knew there was more to the music that interested him, the music that excited him, than he was hearing in Washington. 
And he must also have realized that if you wanted to get somewhere, if you wanted to be more than just a famous local musician, at this point in the history of jazz, you were going to have to come to New York. And when we come back, more with Terry Teachout and the story of Duke Ellington. And the book is Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. And you can get it at Amazon and all the usual suspects, or heck, go to a bookstore. Duke Ellington's story continues here on Our American Story. continue here with Our American Stories and Terry Teachout on the life of Duke Ellington. Talk about the importance of the Roaring Twenties. Ellington came of age during that decade, and it was a time of great freedom in so many respects. Talk about that. The Roaring Twenties are a, a cliche. They're movies. They're scenes in TV shows. We have this idea of what they were like. But the cliche was true. The country was completely turned inside out by prohibition and the resulting lawlessness that, that's stemmed from it, by the sense of personal freedom that people saw it, especially uh, men coming back from the First World War, coming back from Europe. You remember the song, How You Gonna Keep Them Down on the Farm After They've Seen Paris? Well, that was what the Roaring Twenties meant to people. They wanted a larger life, one that had fewer restrictions, fewer limitations. They wanted excitement. Many of them wanted city life and the things that only a city can provide. It is in cities that jazz came to be because they had dance halls and they had cabarets and they had bars and they had gangsters who wanted music to be played while they were selling their illegal liquor and it was just a, the word ferment. I don't mean the pun. There was a tremendous cultural ferment going on right then, not just in music, but in every form of art. And America became a major center for this ferment. We had major visual artists. We had major novelists. We had major classical composers. And we had, of course, the distinctive form of music that gives its name to the period, jazz. If you weren't stimulated by that, then there was nothing in you to be stimulated. And Ellington was stimulated to the highest degree by this freedom. He, as we talked about earlier, was brought up as part of the black bourgeoisie. He believed in the appearance of respectability, but he also wanted to lead a wider, freer life. And the 20s were the best time in the world, maybe in the history of America, to have been able to do that. He was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing. Let's talk about the Cotton Club and its connection to Ellington's rise to prominence. And by the way, your description of the place itself, Terry, it could be its own book. I mean, <laughs> I was just enthralled. Well, it was quite a joint. Uh, and it was, it was produced by racial segregation. In Harlem, there were a number of clubs that did not admit blacks. They were entertainers, they were waiters, they were part of the staff, but they couldn't come in as customers. They were places where white people from downtown who had money to burn came up 
to entertain themselves, uh, to, to discover this new exotic music called jazz. The Cotton Club was probably the best known of these places. Decorated in the style of a plantation, what a horrible irony. To have gotten that gig was a big deal for Ellington, not just because it was a high-profile gig, but because suddenly he was playing every night at a club where his band had to supply a lot of music, not just uh, songs, not just original pieces, but music for dancing, music for floor shows. Suddenly, Duke Ellington had to produce. He was on the spot. And uh, the Cotton Club took what he produced and made it known to New Yorkers with money who talked about it and wrote about it. He first got into print in The New Yorker for performing at the Cotton Club. And uh, he made records of the music that he played there. And of the highest importance, he broadcast on network radio from there. It was one of the biggest breaks of his life when CBS installed a broadcast wire to the Cotton Club in 1929. Up to this moment, Duke Ellington had he'd been making records for some time. He was known to jazz aficionados. But suddenly, all you had to do to hear Duke Ellington at his very best was turn your radio on at night, and there he was. He called this his biggest break, and I think he was absolutely right to say so. It was what made him, in a single stroke, a national figure, and a black national figure. There had not been black bands with this kind of exposure on network radio. Remember, too, this is in 1929, when suddenly... There's no money. It's the Great Depression. The bottom falls out of the record business because people can't afford to buy records. But you could afford to listen to the radio because it didn't cost anything. That was what made Ellington a star. Louis Pasteur said, Chance favors the prepared mind. And Duke Ellington's mind was very much a prepared mind when he went into the Cotton Club in 1929. It forced him to work harder as a composer. It really tested his mettle, but he passed the test. Let's talk about the music. Ellington didn't compose like other composers, and you got into it a bit before. I want to dig in a little bit more. Clark Terry, in your book, said that Ellington was, quote, a compiler of deeds and ideas with a great facility to make something out of what could possibly or would possibly be nothing. Talk about that, Terry. And he didn't give his guys, at least it seems to me, nearly enough credit which something it's something that guys like Frank Sinatra always did was thank Gordon Jenkins and thank the writers, the Harold Arlins and the and the Gershwins. Um, talk about all of that, if you could. To put it in the nastiest possible way, Duke Ellington was a credit hog. He's not the only genius who was. Orson Welles was exactly the same kind of credit hog, and their creative processes were quite strikingly similar. Ellington was not like a classical composer. A classical composer is somebody who sits down at the piano, if he uses a piano to compose, and he writes a piece of music, and then he brings it to the orchestra or the opera company or the string quartet, and they perform it. Maybe he revises it, but basically what he wrote is what they perform. Ellington didn't compose that way because he didn't have the technical grounding that you get from classical training. In the early years, he also had a band full of people, some of whom were very poor sight readers. And Ellington himself, as we said, was not a good sight reader. But Ellington had an interesting deficiency as a composer. He did not have the knack of tunefulness. He wasn't good at writing singable melodies. When you're 
leading a dance band, and to a great extent, your success is reliant on pieces in song form that can become hits, it can become an impediment to your writing. On the other hand, he had put together a, a band full of hand-picked musicians picked by him, these highly original, idiosyncratic musicians who were often quite difficult to work with. He spent a fair amount of time bailing people out of jail and getting them out of trouble. And the reason why he did this was because they inspired him, not just in that generalized sense of, oh, what a great artist, he makes me want to write better. He was with them every night, every day, on the road at the Cotton Club, and they were constantly improvising. And some of them, Johnny Hodges in particular, were extraordinarily good at making up melodies and melodic fragments, and Ellington was listening. And he would write them down. What he liked to do best was, if you played a, a snatch of melody that he liked, he'd buy it from you for cash on the spot. And of course, what he was buying was the total rights to this. He was buying publishing rights. He was buying credit, the whole thing. Jazz musicians don't tend to think ahead about this kind of thing, you know? They play it, they toss it off, they've got a million of them. If Duke says likes this piece, uh, he'll buy it. Okay, fine, you know, I'll take 25 bucks for it. And then he turns it into a song. And not infrequently, the song would become a hit. Almost without exception, the famous songs, I'm not talking about the compositions, the melodies came from musicians, not from him. What would usually happen is that they would play eight bars that stuck in his head. He'd buy it. He'd add a bridge. He'd harmonize it. Uh, he'd turn it into a composition. He'd record it. At a later stage, he might have somebody put lyrics to it. And unless the musician had been very shrewd about retaining rights, all of the proceeds from that hit went to Ellington. So the process, it's, it's not right to call it plagiarism. That word simply doesn't apply here. Something more complicated is going on. It is a collective process of composition, very similar to the way that a movie gets made. You have a director, and he may be the prime mover of the film, but the producer might be the prime mover of the film. And what about the screenwriter? What about the cinematographer? Who gets credit for the total effect of the thing? Duke Ellington gets and deserves total credit for the total effect of the pieces that his band played, but he was not totally responsible for them. He didn't like to talk about this aspect of his compositional process, and you can see why. There's a certain kind of genius who wants you to think that he does everything equally well. Ellington was that kind of genius. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable insight into one of America's great musical talents. We're talking to Terry Teachout, and we're talking about Duke Ellington and his life. And by the way, go to Amazon.com and get the book, Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington. It's superb. When we come back, we'll continue here on Our American Stories with Duke Ellington's story.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and Terry Ticho on the life of Duke Ellington. Now, we've been discussing up till now a very complicated character. Let's talk about his secrets, because he kept a lot, Terry. Ellington was a person who liked to keep his private life very private. And he had good reasons for that. He was living with mistresses throughout his pretty much the whole of his adult life, even though he remained married to the woman he married back in the 20s. He was leading the life of a voluptuary. He was leading uh, a life that would have scandalized many people uh, had they heard about it. I think this, this habit of secrecy spread outward to his whole life. He certainly wanted to keep his compositional process secret, because there were aspects of it that were trade secrets, and there were other aspects of it that I think he would have found embarrassing. The fact that he was much more a collaborative artist than he cared for uh, the public to realize. When you get into the habit of keeping secrets, uh, whether you're an artist or a spy, it's something that can really spread throughout every aspect of your personality. And I think that's, that's what it was with Duke. He just got into the habit of not telling people the truth. It was easier to manipulate them that way. It was easier for his image to come across in the way that he wanted it to come across. And by the end of his life, he'd been doing it for so long that it was simply his custom. Indeed, and I sensed as I read the book and all through the book that I'm not sure if Duke knew whether he was telling the truth or not. Well, I think with some of his set pieces, he may well have forgotten how they got their their origins when he would tell stories about how he wrote a particular piece of music, stories that had absolutely nothing to do with the fact of the matter. It's possible that 20 years down the line, he didn't remember. But also bear in mind that he was telling these stories to to keep his privacy, to keep secrets. And when you're doing it for a reason, you tend to know what the truth is because the truth is what you're trying not to tell people. Let's talk about In a Sentimental Mood. Um, Talk about that song because there was the Ellington story of how it was written and then perhaps the more truthful one. Yes, he had his little tale for that one, as, as he often did for the really popular numbers. If memory serves, he claimed to have written it when he had a woman sitting, two different women, one sitting on either end of the piano bench with him. And uh, he wrote that song on the spot to get over with both of the ladies. Uh, That's a lovely tale. He's not beyond it. Something like that might conceivably have happened, but he left out the most important part, which is that the melody of the song came from somebody else. It came from Otto Hardwick, the lead saxophone player of the band. So if he was composing that song on the spot to get over with the two ladies, uh, he was composing it with somebody else's tune. That's a very characteristic form of Ellingtonian obfuscation, I would say. And yet, many of the songs that he wrote, he had these little vignettes about what the songs meant or how they got written. And when somebody has that kind of habit, it's, again, it's telling you something. In Ellington's case, it's telling us something that we know about him in other ways as well, which is that his music is profoundly autobiographical. So it it stands to reason that he would like to make up these little fables, because whether they were true or not, they did speak to a larger truth, which is that something like that was the way his mind worked. Let's talk about his London trip, because it was an important one. His two-week run at the Palladium shocked him and his band. He said this was a night that scared the devil out of the whole band. 
The applause was so terrifying. It was applause beyond applause, uh, Ellington said. Talk about that London experience, because it was, it was a real boost to both he and his bandmates. Ellington was fairly famous by the time he went to London. But he was famous in a way that a black man would be famous in America in the 30s, a way that is somewhat limited. The whole racial caste system in this country meant that he was not seen as an artist, but as an entertainer, even though he saw himself as an artist. So he goes over to London, and suddenly, very suddenly, uh, that opening night suddenly, he completely overwhelms an audience that has never heard his band live. They've never heard anything like this. There had been some jazz played in Europe, but the Ellington Band was, I think, peculiarly well-designed to appeal to an unusually wide range of of critics and, and aficionados in London at that time, because it was a kind of orchestra that played not just improvised solos, but compositions. So you had a whole lot of classical musicians of real distinction over there who were quite stunned by it and who insisted when they wrote about it that it was in its way equivalent to the best classical music that was coming out of America. That was a very, very big thing for a black man to hear and to be told at that time. This was a man who, at this point in his life, was going from gig to gig in private cars on a train, which sounds very fancy when I say it, but he did that because you couldn't get a hotel in the South if you were black. And suddenly, he goes to London, and he's being treated like a kind of prince, like the genius that he was, and he is also able to stay in the best hotels. It's the total experience of going into this larger, freer world that overwhelmed him at a, at a time when he really needed this kind of, of creative spurt. It thrilled him. No matter how gifted you are, you need praise. No matter how gifted you are, you need to be complimented. You need success. You need people to tell you what you're doing is worthwhile. And if you're a black man in America in the 30s, you need a lot of that because you're dealing with a whole lot of, of evil and foolishness. And he goes over there and this happens to him. And he comes back with, with his account full of, of the coin of praise, intelligent praise, thoughtful praise. He lived off that for a very long time. And he also said this about staying in a real luxury hotel in England. He said, you know, I love this place. I don't know if you realize this, but I have the utmost difficulty staying in a hotel like this in the United States. And Terry, that just broke my heart. It really hit home. Can't you hear him saying that? in that elegant, urbane voice of his, to say, I have the utmost difficulty staying in a hotel like this in the United States. And he's trying to say it with a wry smile, but he's kidding on the square. He means it. He means it. And it seems to me, Terry, that there's a lot of masking going on here. Talk about that, because it's such a big part of Ellington's life, and it's such a painful part. Well, this is when when we were talking early about uh, earlier about how Ellington spoke to conceal himself. I think one of the things that he didn't want people to see was the hurt. He wanted them to feel that he was above such things, wouldn't you? If if you were somebody like Duke Ellington, you'd been raised by him, you'd been 
raised by your mother to believe in the doctrine of Ellingtonian exceptionalism, and you go out in the world and you start to have great success and people write magazine articles about you, but you go down south and they treat you the same way that they treat every other person who has a black skin. You know that hurts. Of course he concealed it. He had to conceal it. He concealed it behind the mask of urbanity. He didn't want people to know that they got his goat. And for good reason. You've been listening to Terry Teachow on the life of Duke Ellington. And my goodness, this book, Duke, you can get it at Amazon, folks. I couldn't put it down. My, my poor wife had to lose me for a few days, and that's on you, Terry. But my goodness, read this book, because it is a combination of history and music. And my goodness, you'll learn a lot about racial history in this country. And it's painful, and it's tragic. But you'll also learn a whole lot about musical genius and the complex character that is Duke Ellington. By the way, he was not seen as an artist by the world and probably by himself until he got to London, where, my goodness, the critics and the fans knew what they were seeing. And he wasn't just some entertainer, folks. He's one of the giants of American music. And when we come back, more with Terry Teachout and the life of Duke Ellington here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Stories and the life of Duke Ellington with Terry Teachout. Now, Terry, after World War II, the big band scene had lost a lot of steam, and Ellington did too. But one concert changed all of that. The 1956 Newport Jazz Festival. Talk about this gig that changed everything. If you like stories, this is one of the best of all possible Ellington stories, what happened in 1956. The Ellington Band had gone through this protracted decline. It had lost important personnel. Things had become increasingly difficult. But Ellington started to get a handle on things in 1956. He stabilized the personnel of the band, and he hired a drummer, Sam Woodyard, who really suited that band. That was a pretty hard band to pull sometimes. And Woodyard, he was a, not a polished artist, but he had the energy and the forthrightness that could really... Uh, put wheels under the Ellington band. The critics started to notice this. The press started to notice this. Time magazine noticed this, and they got interested in maybe doing a big story about Ellington, maybe doing a comeback story that would go on the cover. But you don't get on the cover of Time and back then unless you had a news hook. This is where Ellington got very, very lucky. By 1956, the Newport Jazz Festival had become a big deal in American jazz. George Ween was the man who put it together, and he was quite reluctant to bring Ellington in, because although he admired Ellington, everybody in jazz did, he thought that Ellington was kind of uh, yesterday's news. So a deal was struck between Ween and George Avakian, uh, the great record producer at Columbia and Ellington. Ellington agreed 
to compose a new composition that will be named after the festival, the Newport Jazz Festival Suite. And Columbia agrees to record it live at the 1956 festival. So the deal was struck. They sign it. Ellington and the band comes in. And the Ellington band was full of extremely temperamental people. Almost half the band didn't show up for the rehearsal. They were very bad about rehearsing pieces. Ellington was very bad about getting pieces written on time so that they could be rehearsed. So they come in for this gig, and everybody knows it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Ellington's reputation could rest on this. And the temperamental gentlemen of the Ellington band foul up the rehearsal. Well, everybody is really anxious about this. And they go on that night, and they play the Newport Jazz Festival Suite, and it's, it's all right, but it wasn't anything great. The band's kind of all over the place. George Wien, no doubt, is, is sitting in a seat thinking, oh boy, did I make a mistake. And at this point, Duke Ellington dealt himself a handful of aces. He had a tenor saxophone player in the band named Paul Gonzalez, not a refined player any more than Sam Woodyard was refined. But boy, could he blow, and he really liked to blow the blues. And Ellington had been, he'd taken a piece out of his book from the 30s called Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue, which was a six-minute piece of consisting of blues choruses in different keys. And in the middle of it, Ellington had started to insert what he called a wailing interval, which would just be Gonzalez standing up in front of the rhythm section and playing the blues for as long as he wanted to play. And he tried this out on the road, and it was, it was having good effects, and he thought, well, okay, i got to do something here because otherwise we're going to screw this gig up. So he calls Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue, kicks it off, and we can hear all this because, of course, it was recorded. And suddenly the band is shifted into high gear. Gonzalez comes down front and he plays 27 straight choruses of the blues. And the crowd goes not just wild, but they were dancing. They were yelling and screaming. And Ellington's up there playing piano. He's in, he's in hog heaven. He knows that he's got this going. The rhythm section is, is blazing. Gonzalez drives everybody absolutely into a frenzy. The band comes back in and plays the piece out. And the phrase, they stopped the show, is often used in exaggeration in my business as a theater critic. But believe me, they stopped that show. They stopped it cold. They stopped it so cold that they couldn't get any other group on and that they had to bring Johnny Hodges on to play uh, uh, one of his specialties, a slow blues, just to calm everybody down. And they got it all on tape. So Time Magazine, they're in ecstasy. Suddenly they realize they've got a story and they put Duke Ellington on the cover. This guy who had had been thought to be over the hill. Meanwhile, Columbia releases Ellington at Newport and it becomes an instant success with this long, long, long version of Diminuendo and a Crescendo in Blue. And suddenly, Duke Ellington was not yesterday's news anymore. He was on the cover of Time magazine, which in 1956 was the biggest possible deal for any artist in terms of public recognition. And for the rest of the 50s and well into the 60s, the Ellington band lived off the publicity and the boost in their reputation that came from this amazing gig, an opportunity that they came within inches of letting slip through their fingers.
Indeed. Let's talk about recognition. Uh, the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it's something that haunted Ellington. Why? The Pulitzer Prize for Music was organized to recognize classical composers. It doesn't have to be given in any given year. And in 1965, the music panel decided that there had been no piece of classical music, no individual piece that was worthy of the prize. They decided instead to recommend to the board that Ellington be presented with a special citation for long-term achievement. But in 1965, the board hi-hats him. He doesn't deserve the award. Now, Ellington handled himself with colossal elegance. He was on the road. He was actually down in Kentucky. And a reporter said, do you have any comment? And Ellington said, and again, imagine this in that urbane voice of his. He said, fate's being kind to me. Fate doesn't want me to be too famous, too young. Well, that's all very well and good, but in fact, it just cut him to the quick. And he was outraged. He was angry, but he was angry because it hurt. This was something that, especially in the 60s, when, remember, rock has become big in the 60s, and the energy that that Ellington got from the firing of the afterburners in 1956 is now starting to dispel. Suddenly, tastes in popular music are changing greatly. He had all sorts of reasons for wanting that kind of recognition that being the first jazz musician to win a Pulitzer Prize would have brought him, and he didn't get it. I don't think he ever quite got over that. It's not the sort of thing that a man like Duke Ellington would have gotten over. And it's just too damn bad, because, you know, he was bigger than any prize. He was bigger than any award. But he was human. He was only human. You can only take so much hurt. And that got him. It got him where he lived. Let's talk about the Medal of Freedom, because he did get that. But that's more of a political award. It's not the Pulitzer. But he got that in 69. Did that help? Richard Nixon was president in 1969. He wasn't a jazz buff, but he actually did like music and knew something about it. And he had assistants in his office who knew a lot about it. And it was thought that, for whatever reason, it was thought that giving Ellington the Medal of Freedom in 1969 was not only something that he deserved, but that something that would be, shall we say, politic. And no matter what your politics are, and there were a lot of people who hated uh, Richard Nixon in 1969, just as there are now, but he was the president. And this was a very big deal, a very big deal. Ellington accepted with the utmost delight. They had the most amazing party. Uh, Richard Nixon actually played uh, Happy Birthday for Duke on piano that night. There are a lot of press accounts of the party. And every time you read about it, you thought, oh boy, I would have liked to have been there. But could it possibly have been as good as, uh, as they said it was? Let's talk about the end of Duke Ellington's life, Terry. What happened? And what do you think is his lasting legacy? He got sick at a time when the money was running out. And it got harder and harder to book the Ellington Band. And Ellington was worn out. It's so sad. And of course what it was was cancer. Duke knew what he had. Nobody was trying to hide it from him. To see film of those last appearances, there was a a TV tribute that Quincy Jones produced, and you can see film of Ellington. And he looks old. He looks old and tired and sad. 
and then it was all gone. We've talked a lot about the flaws in his personality. There aren't too many geniuses who don't have deeply flawed personalities. Like most of the geniuses I've known, his highest priority was his work. He wanted to be able to do the work every day, to show up for the gig, to write music. And he was willing to subordinate anything and anybody to that. And as a result, when you go back and look at his life, you cannot help but be struck by how unattractive certain aspects of it are. He was an opportunist. He was unscrupulous. I don't know that he was a man I would have wanted to work for. But if you worked for him, you were working for a genius and a genius whose gifts included the gift of being able to make everybody who played with him sound better. A gift of being able to take the little fragments of melody that they tossed off and turn them into compositions that that people still sing 50 and 60 and 70 years later. He was a giant. That is exactly what he was. And you've been listening to Terry Teachout on the astounding life of Duke Ellington, American composer and visionary. And what a complicated life. As Terry said, the life of an absolute giant in American music and jazz. Go to Amazon and get Duke, A Life of Duke Ellington by Terry Teachout. It's a terrific read, an important one, too. Duke Ellington's story here on Our American Story.